You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Thank you for coming. Thank you to Sydney Ideas for hosting tonight's event. Thank you uh, to Pacific Calling Partnerships, which along with uh, the SEI has been uh, responsible for bringing together the panel. And in particular, as always, a thank you to Michelle St. Anne, the Deputy Director of SEI, and to Nathan Collins, our event coordinator. Let me start by telling you about our guests before I say a few of my own words. Anote Tong is the former president of Kiribati and one of the world's most prominent advocates for global action on climate change. He's played a critical role in the United Nations conferences on climate change, especially at the COP21 in Paris. With other Pacific leaders, he played a leading role in changing the Paris Climate Accord to fix a target of global warming to one and a half degrees Celsius, arguing that any target greater would mean abandoning hope for the low-lying atoll nations of the world, such as Kiribati. For his courageous international advocacy and awareness raising, Anochitong has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. More than most, he's brought the world's attention to the existential threat that climate change represents to global security. He's also responsible for a range of international initiatives to combat climate change and protect the environment, including the Tarawa Climate Change Conference in November 2010, the AMBO Declaration, where he oversaw the creation uh, of a very large uh, marine park, uh, over 480,000 square kilometers, the largest protected marine area in the world, which was later adopted as UNESCO uh, World Heritage List site. That's the Phoenix Island protected area. Since leaving office, he's continued his high-level advocacy on behalf of the Pacific Islands, and low-level island nations. Through his efforts, climate change has had resonance, increasing resonance throughout the world, and we're learning an amazing amount from him. And most recently, a documentary film about him called Anote's Ark has gained many accolades and awards uh, and was a feature documentary at the Sundance Film Festival in the US this year. Uh, after uh, an introductory talk, Professor Rosemary Lister will respond. Rosemary is Professor of Climate and Environmental Law at the University of Sydney Law School, a fellow of the Australian Academy of Law. She's also one of our key researchers at the Sydney Environment Institute. Rosemary has published two books recently uh, in the area of uh, climate disaster law, one climate disaster law, a co-edited book, uh, and her incredible book, Climate Justice and Disaster Law, which came out a couple of years ago um, from Cambridge. Rosemary has been selected by the Australian Financial Review as one of 2018's 100 Women of Influence in the Public Policy category. In 2015, that was a cheer, that was nice. Uh, in 2015, Rosemary was appointed by the Victorian government to a three-person independent review committee to review the state's Climate Change Act and make recommendations to place Victoria as a leader on climate change. The government accepted 32 of the IRC's 33 recommendations. Now I want to know what the one was that they didn't. Um, uh, and they were included in the Climate Change Act of 2017. In 2013, Rosemary was appointed Herbert Smith Freehill's visiting professor at Cambridge Law School and was also a visiting scholar at Trinity College in Cambridge in 2009 and 2014. Uh, in other areas of environmental law, Rosemary specializes uh, in energy and climate law as well as water law. Uh, after Rosemary, Jennifer Newell will join us. Jennifer has been exploring Pacific history and culture for over 20 years. She's the manager of the Pacific and International Collection at the Australian Museum. 
Jenny's worked in museums and with Pacific communities in London, in New York, and in Australia. Her research focus has been on relationships between Pacific people, environments, and material culture. And her particular focus is on the cultural dimensions of climate change, including Pacific Islander activism and the changing relationships uh, to the ocean. And I look forward to talking about that tonight. And finally, Meredith Bergman uh, is uh, Honorable Dr. Meredith Bergman. She's a patron, patron of the Pacific Calling Partnership. She's visited Kiribati as part of that organization. She's a former president of the Legislative Council of New South Wales and former chairperson of the Australian Council of International Development. So I did want to start this evening uh, with a few personal comments. Um, when it comes to energy policy in this country, when it comes to climate change policy in this country, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that Australia does not have a government making decisions in the interests of its population, its economy, or its larger role in the world. We don't have a government that makes decisions based on economic rationality, on environmental science, on innovative industrial policy, or sadly, any sense of responsibility or empathy or ethics. As a political scientist, I often have to explain to my students what regulatory capture is. Right? Regulatory capture is when an agency is run by the very industry that it's meant to regulate, and we see the revolving door that sort of thing. And I used to have to lecture at length to kind of explain what regulatory capture is. This government, however, has given us a photograph of regulatory capture, our current PM holding a piece of coal on the floor of Parliament, um, telling people not to be afraid. That's regulatory capture of a government, not just a single agency. Obviously, we should be afraid, uh, and afraid not only because of this dedication to coal mining uh, and burning and what it's bringing to us in terms of climate change, but also because, and this is where it gets personal, where it's brought us in terms of the quality of the government, the quality of public policy, and frankly, the quality of the people that run that government. And I know President Tong doesn't like to speak of the comment made by the current environment minister uh, at the restaurant in Canberra last week. He rightly wants to focus uh, on his campaign to get Australia to act on its international responsibilities. But I think the kind of insensitivity shown at that restaurant, the absolute lack of care or empathy about a situation that Australian policies are creating, the, the gall, the arrogance, the insulting nature of that comment. I think it represents how the lack of ethics and empathy in our policies is literally embodied in the lack of ethics and empathy in the members of the current government. And it's not, <laughs> it, it, it's not just about, it's regulatory capture, and it's not just about the current environment minister um, being a former lawyer from the coal industry and continuing to represent that industry. It's about the lack of recognition of the situation of our Pacific neighbors, a lack of self-reflection and knowledge about the historical relationship and the impact of Australian policies on the region, and again, I think, uh, just a basic lack of decency. 
And that's what's at the core of that comment, um, the core of our unforgivable lack of real and effective climate policy, because those two things are related. Both the policies and the people are, for me, an insult, not only to our neighbors, but to Australia as well, and what we are capable of doing in the energy, climate, and regional space. So I look forward to both people and policies changing in the very near future, and that's what we're all here to work toward. So let me introduce Meredith Bergman, who will introduce our guest of honor. I want to begin by acknowledging that we are on the land of the Gadigal people of the Great Eora Nation and pay tribute to their elders. And I'd like to say a few words about the Pacific Calling Partnership which has helped with the visit of uh, former President Tong to Australia. The Pacific Calling Partnership was set up to bring awareness to Australians of the effects of their actions on our Pacific neighbours and to amplify the voice of our Pacific neighbours about, uh, you know, the, it's not just the, an important issue, it is the important issue of our time, climate change. I was lucky to visit Kiribati with the Pacific Calling Partnership in 2013 when I was president of uh, ACFID, the Australian Council for International Development, which is the peak body for all the non-government overseas aid agencies and aid and development agencies in Australia. And I just want to tell you a little bit of the reality of, of visiting Kiribati, apart from the fact that it's a very beautiful island nation. Um, the, the problems of climate change are already with Kiribati. It's not about a future. They are dealing with these problems now. Um, the first thing I did when I arrived was I needed a, a coffee very badly, so I boiled up the kettle in the little motel and I've never been in a place where if you boil the kettle long enough, you still can't get the salt out of the water. And this was the town water, which had been, of course, originally from the uh, pure water cell underneath the, uh, the land, but which is now so degraded that it is, it is really salt water. They have problems with uh, getting... Um, Getting, having proper uh, sewerage outlets, they have problems with grave sites because uh, if you have a country which is basically being inundated, um, every time there's a big storm, um, the country is, is inundated. The main island, Tarawa, is really just one long atoll and uh, it, it really has one road which really doesn't have a name, or, but when Bob Carr was the uh, Minister for Foreign Affairs and we were badgering him to give it a lot of money to fix up this very, very important main road, and we even said, look, we'll call it the Carr Road, <laughs> <laughs> after our famous non-driving foreign minister. Um, so it is, it, is a, it is a country which is two metres above sea level, they, they show you a little sort of mound and laughingly say, this is Mount Kiribati. <laughs> that, but it is, a, it is 
already in clear and present danger. They have, the, the government has already looked at the other islands that uh, make up the, the island nation of Kiribati. Um, it's not just Tarawa, although it's, it's very important in the major island. But they've already decided which other islands they're going to have to um, abandon. And, and I, I, I called it the sort of Sophie's choice of what, what you do with these lovely island paradises because they can't really um, save all the islands. And this is happening now. It's not, it's not just about the future. Um, so Kiribati is a tiny island state which produces almost no carbon emissions but which is dealing with the effect of developed nations' carbon emissions. Um, the e Kiribati are good global citizens and now it's up to us to um, see if we can convince the Australian government to also be a good global citizen. And the government's response to the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's special report on the 1.5 degrees has just been published and we await uh, a uh, proper response from our government. Um, and to talk about this, uh, I have great pleasure in introducing former president Anate Tong. Um, he is the fourth president of Kiribati. He was elected in uh, 2003 and then served uh, his, the three terms and, and has uh, retired in 2015 and, of course, since then. But also what, all the time that he was president, he has been seeing his role as bringing to the world the, the fate of those countries in the um, Pacific and, and, and other island nations, so places like Bangladesh, which are going to be the first to uh, get the effects of climate change. So, uh, but first of all, before um, former President Tong talks to us, uh, we're going to show a clip from the film, uh, from the documentary Anote's Ark. Thank you very much. Good evening. <clears throat> Let me begin by acknowledging the elders of this land and seeking their blessing as we discuss one of the most critical issues facing humanity at this point in time. I would also like to also begin the way we normally begin our uh, exchange in, in our tradition in Kiribati. What we always do is we bless each other. And so let me bless you, but I would also ask you to bless me back. Okay? And so. Barry, Barry. Oh, very good. <laughs> you are ahead of it. <laughs> so what I would do is I say, come to Mori, and you would simply say, respond by saying, Mori. So let me bless you. Come to Mori. Now you can shout. So having blessed each other, we can now move on with all the blessings of those around us that we, not, we do not see, including the elders of this land. And I would also like to begin by acknowledging with deep gratitude the, um, the University of Sydney Environmental uh, Institute for making this possible to be here, to share the story that I've been talking about over the last few days, and also to thank the um, Edmund Rice and Pacific Calling Partnership 
partnership for making this possible, Oxfam, and all of those who have been instrumental in getting me here, and to tell you the story that I've been going around in different parts of the world to tell. And of course, I need not, I don't think I need to go through this, what's been said already, but um, maybe some indication of what it is. Why, why is it that I'm doing this, that I'm spent much of my, my time in office talking about it, telling the world that we have a problem, and why I continue to go around in different parts of the world to share this story. As Meredith has already said, we, in Kiribati, we, the land is on average, it's about two meters above sea level. But in fact, it's not even that. I think you saw that piece of island there. Now, all of that is covered with, with water during the high tide. And what is left is barely a meter above sea level. But I think the point is we are extremely vulnerable to what is happening. And how, how is it that we have continued to, to be in, remain in existence when all of this is going on? Well, the reason is because we're on the equator where we don't have storms. We don't get the storms. We create the storms. And we send them down to our friends in Fiji and Vanuatu. You know, these are our gifts to them. But uh, what is happening is things are changing. In 2014, 2014, the, the cyclone Pam, which devastated the um, uh, Vanuatu, actually came uh, round again. It went back north, but it came from our part of the world. But this time round, it went back north and flooded all of the islands of Tuvalu. Flooded. It means there was no land above water. The water came, but it, it did go out again. But when it was there, everything was flooded. And if you, you hear this, listen to the stories of the grandmothers telling their story, they're running around trying to find their young grandchildren and children and trying to find somewhere to put them in a bucket or a cooler box. Further north in Kiribati, we, our southern islands had the same experience. A lot of homes were destroyed. And uh, for the rest of the islands, they were flooded to the extent that a lot of, there was a lot of damage to food crops, and of course the, um, the, the fresh waterlands. And so this has been happening. When, how did I begin to get involved? Well, when I first came into office in 2003, I started reading what was happening on climate change. I am not the first leader from the Pacific to be talking about climate change. We, we had other leaders from Tuvalu, and I'm sure other countries who, who, who saw what was coming. But I think what was true was the science then was, uh, there was still a lot of controversy. As I understand now, that was, um, that was actually driven by the energy industry, trying to sow doubt. I, I saw this um, documentary, The Merchants of Doubt. I don't know if you, any of you have seen that. And it's very interesting and very disappointing the way it was done. But by two, 2007, I think much of the, the scientific controversy had been resolved. And I, when I read that report, I really begin, began to get very worried. And so I began to uh, advocate much more aggressively. But when I started talking, people 
didn't listen. I started, I think I was the first leader to take it to the highest international political level at the United Nations uh, General Assembly. But nobody listened. The focus was on terrorism. So I got my people together, come on, let's, let's find a way to do this better. How can we associate what is happening on climate change with terrorism? So they said, what about eco-terrorism? So I, I started talking about eco-terrorism, but still nobody listened. And then there was another time when I read this report about the polar bears, they're having severe problems with the melting of the ice in the, in the North Pole and how their habitat, habitat will be destroyed. And, uh, and so I spoke at the United Nations and I said, yeah, I heard, I read this report. I feel sorry for the polar bears. But also this is affecting our people in the middle, on the equator. But yet nobody is talking about it. And so my task over that period was trying to bring forward, forth uh, the human dimension of climate change. Up to then, it had been a scientific debate. It had been, quite to a certain degree, environmental. But nobody was really focusing on what it meant to people. And so that was what I was trying to get people to focus on. But it, I tell you, it took a long time for that to happen. And I recall an experience in um, 2012 when I was in, in Rio. I, in the, I was listening to the, some of the speakers, and my staff came running to me, and they said, hey, I think it was the president of Chile or Peru. I'll, I'll have to check it out. And they came running. I said, hey, this guy has stolen parts of your speech, earlier speeches. And I said, good. <laughs> Means he's been reading my speeches, but not only is he doing that, but I think his officials have taken possession of it. And so that was a good thing. But it took a long time for the momentum to build up. Because at one time, I was a lone voice at the United Nations General Assembly talking about this. Nobody really focused on it. And so the momentum began to build up. And uh, it was gratifying to see that uh, other people were beginning to focus on it. In our part of the world, in the Pacific, it, it also took some time. But I'm so glad that... Uh, as a region, we became very solid, and we went to, to, uh, to Paris, very solid. We had some, some trouble trying to reconcile our position as Pacific Islands with the position of then the Australian government and the New Zealand government. And I, I share this experience with you because it is there on record, and it is there in the public domain. But the reality of what happened was we had made the Suba Declaration in 2015 at the meeting in, in, in Suba, at which I think the Prime Minister of India was there. And so we, we made the declaration, the Suba Declaration, at which we, we were going for 1.5 rise in global temperature, and we had ruled out coal uh, as a future source of energy. When we went to the forum in Papua New Guinea that same year, but much closer to the, uh, the, the Paris discussions, we had trouble trying to push that because our friends from Australia and New Zealand were not happy with it because less than two degree rise in temperature was too damaging for their economies. And I remember the fight we had. It was the 
the fight we had was closed, so it was only the leaders in, in, in retreat. But later we had the a press conference, and I'm sure it was shown here. But I remember that press conference because I was still near the Pacific Island leader there. There was a chairman who was a Papua New Guinea prime minister and the prime minister of Australia and New Zealand. And I remember these two just going ahead and saying, oh, we cannot allow less than two degrees. And I was watching them. Are these, are these boys serious? Can they seriously be talking about their economies when we are talking about the future of our people? And so I put up my hand and I said, can I, have, can I make a comment? And of course, the media was there. You know, I'm hearing what my friends, are, my colleagues are saying. And I understand what they mean. But I would also like you and them to understand that a rise in global temperature of 2 degrees, even 1.5, is already far too damaging for the future of our people. And I want you to take that into consideration. And of course, the media people, you know, they saw a fight coming between leaders and so the older hands who end up to ask further questions. But of course, it had been orchestrated. Uh, no more questions. But I think that is what we had to, to face up all of this time. And um, fortunately, leading up to Paris, there was a slight amendment in the position that Australia took. And I, would, I can say with, um, with a lot of gratitude that the position that the Australian government went with to Paris was different from the position that, we, that I was confronting in Papua New Guinea uh, during the Pacific Islands Forum. And so Paris was, uh, a lot of people say, oh, Paris was a great success. How was it achieved? I'll tell you how it was achieved. It took a lot of work. And it didn't all happen in Paris. It took, oh, for me, it took maybe quite a long time because I had to, I visited a lot of capitals to try and get them on board. And of course, the, uh, you had that meeting here of the G20 in 20, uh, 2014 or 2015. You had the G20 meeting when uh, President Obama was asking why climate change was not on the agenda of the G20. I remember I was here, here in Sydney. And um, of course, uh, President Hollande was coming back from the G20 and we, we had a meeting with him in, in New Caledonia. And the one message we, we really impressed upon him was, you've got to do this. You've got to have an agreement We've got to come out of Paris with an agreement because for us, our future is dependent on it. And so Paris was uh, quite a success in terms of concluding an agreement. But it had always been my, it remained a question in my mind whether Paris was genuine or not. Because I knew what happened in Paris. Before any country could object, the um, the French foreign minister who was chairing just hit the table and said, agreed. And so those who were about to object, object had no time to object. Good thing. <laughs> and I'm glad it did happen. But I could believe that it, uh, it would unravel one day, and it already is unraveling. And uh, I think the question was, are we going to deliver what we committed to in Paris? And I think this is the question that we need to answer. Already we are seeing the United States withdrawing. Uh, I've heard that even Australia may be considering doing that because it doesn't feel legally bound by that agreement. I, I hear that uh, Brazil 
He's talking about withdrawing. He's talking about opening up the, the Amazon forest. He's talking about a whole lot of things. I'm hearing that a number of countries have be begun doing, which is what is entirely in, in contradiction to the spirit of the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement is not a negotiation. It's a, it must be a sincere attempt to resolve this challenge. And it's not, it's not about making you look good to your neighbors that you are part of this global agreement. It's not about doing the least you can do. It must be about a genuine commitment to ensure that this planet survives, that nobody is left behind, that people in countries like mine do not go underwater. This is what it's all about because climate change is the greatest moral challenge facing humanity. And it's not about economics. It's not about what? It's about people. And I think we've got to understand that for the first time. We've got to forget about the messing the numbers in our bank account, in our GDP. It's got to be about our values as human beings. And this is the challenge that is facing all of us today. How much can we count in terms of moral wealth? Because we, I think we are beginning to, to realize that all of the development that we have been pursuing had been done at a huge cost to the environment. So the, all the negotiations that we've been going, doing at the UNFCCC, because unfortunately we regard it as a negotiation between countries. But I tell you, we forgot the most important participant in the negotiation, and this is nature. It's the most important part of the negotiation. But yet we are dividing it between us and forgetting that nature is right there, watching all of what we're doing and making a judgment at the, un at the end of it all, just say, oh, you failed, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop doing what I have been doing to you. And this is the point. It's not a negotiation. It's not about your national interest. It's about a global challenge. And it's about thinking as global citizens. And it's about rising to that global challenge, and it's about, it's about global leadership. Because, unfortunately, and I've had this, this very direct personal experience, with the changes in government, there is a change in policy on climate change. And unfortunately, it, um, we tend to, to, to believe that uh, when, when a certain government, I won't say party, but when a certain government is in power, um, climate change at the top of the agenda. When another party comes in, it's at the bottom of the agenda. But I tell you, nothing changes. Climate change will continue to happen. In terms of what it means to our, to our people in our part of the world and uh, those who are on the front line of climate change in the Indo-Pacific, it's just not, not only Kiribati, we have Tuvalu, we have the Marshall Island, Tokela, and the, the, in the ocean, Indian Ocean, there's... Uh, Maldives, and of course we have the largest uh, population in, um, in Bangladesh. And so it's about people. What is happening is about people. And it's not about, um, it's not a problem that's going to go. And um, given the latest report, I, I'll share this because as I was leaving home a couple of Mondays ago, 
I, I was flying onto the United States. But as I was getting through and I, I received, I checked my mail in, in Fiji because I, I transited in Fiji. And I got this note from my wife. And she, I saw this message and she said, isn't it scary? I didn't know what she was talking about. So I said, what is scary? She said, the report. And this is the, the latest IPCC report. I hadn't seen it. And um, no, we're not afraid of coal. We are scared of it. And I think this is what it's all about. I think what's very important is um, how do we respond to the latest report? Because previously, I believe we, had, we thought we had a, a bit more time to deal with all of this. But it's becoming compressed. And it's getting very, very serious. And the question is, are we going to respond in time? I don't know. I think the answer remains with each and every one of us. But let me say that um, I have been to Australia in the past. I've spoken about this. And I know, I remember your, some of the people in the audience, they, they want me to fight your politicians, your leaders. And I said, no, no, it's not my job. If you think you have a problem with your leaders, you put them there. So do something about it. If you don't, if you don't think they reflect your values, well, you know what to do next. But don't. I will not fight your, your, your leaders. But I think what's important, I, I, of course, I was here for the, the recent by-election, and I think it's sending a very loud message, which for me is, is very gratifying because I am hearing the people of Australia uh, sending a very loud message. And the message is, I think it should be heard in the rest of the world, including the United States, that people do care what's happening to climate change. Because I can tell you, it's not only people in our part of the world in Kiribati that are going to be affected. We may be affected sooner with the rise in sea level. But I assure you, this coming summer, I'm sure you're going to have your bushfires. And I am sure there will be those who will lose their homes. And it may be that there will be those that will lose their lives. Your farms are facing a lot of problems. I was just recently in, um, in, in the U.S. during the uh, Hurricane Michaels. That was huge. So it's not, it, uh, climate change is only, not only a problem for people like us, it's a problem for everybody. And I'm hoping that we can, we can take heed of the messages and the signals that nature continues to send us and hope that we'll, we'll, we will not delay until it is too late. Because I can assure you, if it, if it goes on beyond what it's doing today, then by, if we start thinking that that's when we will respond. I believe it's going to be too late. Climate change, for me, has, has, been, a, has been an issue that I've been passionate about, and I, I guess I, you know, I, there was a time I didn't know what to do because it's, it's a problem and a challenge that uh, I had no answer to, and I still don't have an answer to. But it's a real problem. I think, as Meredith said, it's not a... It's not speculation. When uh, Foreign Minister Carr came, he said, he made a statement to people in Australia, you know, it, climate change is not speculation. It is here. It's happening. And for me, 
A lot of people ask me, how can you keep going? And I can tell you, there are times I've been trying to retire since I retired, okay? <laughs> and, uh, but the reason I keep going is because I have a lot of grandchildren, and it is about them. There are so many other grandchildren, people who really don't know what to do with it, what to do about it, have no voice. And I think they, they must depend on people talking about it. All of you who are here have a role to play in all of this. And there are times we, when we, my wife and I, we sit and we watch our grandchildren play, and we, we ask the question, what is going to happen to these young people? Because if our islands do not go underwater in 20 years' time, then it, will, it, then it may be in 50 years' time. But if not, maybe 100 years' time. But the reality is, it is inevitable. So we need to step forward. I'll, I'll conclude by being a little bit more positive, okay? So what do you do? Okay, I come up with a lot of, that, that film, it's a long film, it's about one hour or more, and it, um, it goes through some of the wild and radical ideas I came up in trying to address this. And it's about, I, I went, I, I, in, what, I got the Japanese to look at building floating islands so that maybe we can use them. We can live on floating islands. I, I've been engaging with the United Arab Emirates so that uh, they can build the islands together with the, um, the, the Koreans. But it's about not giving up. And we have to find some way to survive this. And it's about raising the islands so that when the next storm comes, the people in Tuvalu are not running around trying to find where the kids are but that there is a place that they can go to in safety, that their safety is guaranteed. So that's what I would like to see happen. I've been, I've been talking about this. It's not easy because, unfortunately, my government has a different view. I think they, they, they tend to trust in God. They say God will look after us, okay? I, I'm also, I also believe in God, but I, I, I think I'm a bit more uh, practical. So in, our, in Kiribati, there is a lot of that. And uh, religious people always say, always reject what I say and say, no, no, God will, will look after us. And so I thought, no, I cannot deal with these uh, church leaders because I cannot argue with them because they, people uh, listen to church leaders better than they listen to their politicians. Because people, because they have that link to God, okay? And so what did I do? I went to see the Pope, okay? Because the Pope was their boss, okay? And, uh, but even with the, uh, the, the, when the Pope issued that encyclical with a very powerful message, still there is that. We have to get over it. But I think God actually, he gave us the, um, the talent to deal, with, to deal with the problems. But he's not going to come down and lift us out of this. Okay, I, I think I've spoken rather long, but in con uh, so basically what I had advocated in, uh, during the, 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 the close, the, the end of, towards the end of my, my term in office was uh, to build up the island so that we can continue to have the land that we call Kiribati, so that our people, wherever they may be, can, can feel secure that they, they do have a home still uh, in existence. And so what happens to the rest? Well, I, my the idea is that if there are people, people will be displaced, there is no question. But 
I was, I would always rejected the idea of our people being categorized as uh, climate refugees. And so, what I advocated instead was, if any displacement or relocation is going to take place, it'll be done with, as a migration with dignity. What does that mean? Really, it was, it's just trying to put some sense of dignity in a highly undignified event. But as I thought about it, it's a, it's a reaction to, it's a proactive reaction to what's happening. So instead of waiting for this to happen, and then for you to be dislocated and what have you, we would actively prepare for it. So that if and when those who decide to relocate, they would have had the preparations, they would have had the training and the education, the skills to migrate anywhere they wish to. And they would fit into that society and be worthwhile citizens in that society. They would have a place because it's about finding a place. And uh, not, they will not go as a burden to their neighbors, but as people who will contribute to society. I joke to our communities when I visit them here in Australia, New Zealand, everywhere. I said, I, I, I encourage you to go to school, get your education, get your qualification. I encourage you to, I'd love to see some of you in parliament in this country. And I really would love to see one of you become prime minister in this country one day. <laughs> but uh, it is not unrealistic because here you have that. In New Zealand, you have that. In the United States, you have that. And so Australia, like the United States, like New Zealand, it's a land of, of migrants. But I think it's about making that mix a positive thing. So that is what I, that is my concept of uh, migration with dignity. It's, um, I'm, I, a lot of people get interested in this, but I, maybe I'll have the opportunity to explain it a bit further uh, later on. And let me stop here because I, I was going to speak for 10 minutes. I promised that I would speak for 10 minutes, but I get carried away and I forget. But uh, let me stop here. And of course, we will have the opportunity later. But let me thank you for being so patient and to listen to me. And um, I know you will want to ask me a bit about what is happening with the government here. But uh, I know we're being filmed, and I've got to be very careful. <laughs> so let me stop there. But of course, we can continue that later. Thank you very much. I would like to also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet this evening and to pay my respects to their elders past, present and future because of course in this discussion about climate justice and Pacific Islands we are very concerned not only about current generations but future generations as well. So just to let you know that I've been at Sydney Law School for 23 years and I've devoted nearly all of my teaching and research to climate law. And most of that was taken up with reducing emissions until about 2009, when I decided to devote probably all of my scholarship to this question of climate justice 
and disaster law. So I'm going to share a few of my insights with you this evening. I just want to honor your excellency, Mr. Tong, for all of your contributions and commitments. It's absolutely amazing. And thank you so much. Thank you. So when we talk about climate justice, I guess one of the most simple explanations is that it frames climate change as an ethical, legal, and political issue, incorporating issues of environmental and social justice rather than one that is purely physical in nature. And when we think about climate change threats to small island developing states, it's been very interesting for me to read a number of reports by the United Nations University talking about Pacific Islands climate change and migration, which were brought out in 2016. And the report on Kiribati talks about the experiences of people facing natural hazards between 2005 and 2015. 96% of the population has faced at least one hazard. And these include cyclones, drought and irregular rains, floods, sea level rise, saltwater intrusion, and storm surge, with differences between the capital and outlying islands. For Tuvalu, 97% of people have been affected by at least one catastrophic event. Cyclones, drought and irregular rains, floods, saltwater intrusions, sea level rise, and storm surge. The World Bank, in the meantime, wrote this report in 2017 called Unbreakable, Building the Resilience of the Poor. And from studying 89 countries, it documented the millions of people who are being pushed into extreme poverty as a result of climate disasters, including storm surge, windstorm, floods, and droughts. So let's talk for a moment about the threat of climate change to regional security. The Senate Foreign Affairs, Defense and Trade References Committee released a report in May of this year called Implications of Climate Change for Australia's National Security. And it refers to the 2016 Defense White Paper which described climate change as a major challenge for countries in Australia's immediate region and committed Australia to provide support to the region, stating our strategic weight, proximity and resources place high expectations on us to respond to instability or natural disasters. And climate change means we will be called on to do so more often. In 2016, the Foreign Policy White Paper warned that many countries in Australia's immediate region, especially small island states, will be increasingly affected by climate change, requiring inter-country cooperation. And so the Senate Committee recommends that the Commonwealth Government develop a climate security white paper. And it recommends that the, the Department of Defense create a dedicated senior leadership position to assist in planning and managing the delivery of domestic and international humanitarian assistance and disaster relief as these pressures increase over time. It also recommends that the Commonwealth Government provide further funding for international climate adaptation and disaster risk reduction measures in addition to existing aid budgets. 
But first and foremost, in the interests of climate justice, Australia needs to reduce its emissions. Now, the IPCC report of the 8th of October has high confidence that global warming is likely to reach 1.5 degrees between 2030 and 2052. Every extra bit of warming matters, especially since warming of 1.5 or higher increases the risks associated with long-lasting or irreversible changes. And global net human-caused emissions of CO2 need to fall by about 45% from 2010 levels by 2030 and net zero by 2050. So Australia's most recent national greenhouse gas inventory shows us that our emissions are steadily climbing. Under the Paris Agreement, we have committed to implement an economy-wide target to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 26 to 28% below 2005 levels by 2030. Of course, the question for many in the room is, is this an adequate target? But I would like to assure you that currently there are no adequate legal and policy responses to meet this challenge and any future targets. With regard to financial assistance to the region, how much is enough? Um, I want to refer you <coughs> particularly to the bottom bar of this slide because mostly when we hear about economic losses from disasters, we focus on the physical assets, the loss of property and infrastructure, but more and more attention is turning to non-economic losses, those losses to individuals, society, and the environment. And to just mention a few recent disasters, Typhoon Haiyan caused damage of $14.5 billion in the Philippines where only 300 million was insured. 2015 Cyclone Pam caused damage of 450 million, more than half of Vanuatu's yearly GDP. And Cyclone Winston caused damage of $650 million in Fiji, 14% of GDP. And these are single incidents. So in 2010, developed countries agreed to provide $100 billion every year by 2020 to assist developing countries to mitigate and adapt to climate change. Under the Paris Agreement, developed countries are also required to scale up these financial resources. And yet the Green Climate Fund, which manages these funds, reported on the 8th of June 2018 that to date only $10.13 billion has been committed by developed countries and that this is to be shared among the 147 developing countries listed under the UNFCCC. Now, Australia has made a contribution of 187.2 million US dollars. And in its DFAT public statement on development assistance to, to Kiribati in the current year, the total ODA amounts to $29.4 million, comprising about 33% of Kiribati's total ODA. But this covers all of the ODA to Kiribati. And although the Australian government mentions that it's working with the World Bank to improve access to freshwater supplies um, in Tarawa and the outer islands and to build the resilience of 
coastal infrastructure, our question has to be exactly how many Australian dollars are being committed to Pacific Island countries. And while the governments of the world talk about funding for adaptation and disaster risk reduction, it's also important to remember the IPCC's fifth assessment report, which points out all of the climatic drivers and threats to small island states, and they indicate how high the risks are, and those cross-hatchings indicate the extent to which climate adaptation will help to mitigate the risk. Talking about climate displaced persons, it's important for us to think about the terminology. Displacement is where people are forcibly moved on from their homes after a disaster. Migration is where people move for a number of reasons, including climate change and planned location, which Mr. Tong has been speaking to so many governments about, is organized relocation of people. Now, the same report that I referred you to earlier looked at the criteria to be fulfilled for migration and the percentage of households in Kiribati who would migrate if these criteria were fulfilled. If sea level rise becomes more serious, if floods become more serious, saltwater intrusion becomes more serious, droughts become more serious, there are fewer fish in the sea, and growing crops becomes more difficult. So at this stage, I think it's important to address the legal question of whether or not people fleeing climate change are in fact climate refugees. And this is a case from the New Zealand Court of Appeal in 2014, where an Ikiribas was appealing against deportation from New Zealand on the grounds of climate change. And the court concluded that the fear of future persecution was not objectively well-founded, as climate change does not discriminate or differentiate on account of one of the five refugee convention grounds. Refugee status may be available if climate change gave rise to armed conflict targeting a particular segment of the population or, is or where uh, human humanitarian relief is politicized and discriminates against a particular group. Now, bearing this in mind, the Paris Agreement set up a task force on displacement to develop recommendations for integrated approaches to avert, minimize, and address displacement related to the adverse impacts of climate change. And their recommendations will be presented to the Conference of the Parties in November, December 2018. At the same time, the United Nations General Assembly has proposed the UN Global Compact for Safe and Orderly Migration to establish a global governance framework for international cooperation on migrants and human mobility, including humanitarian, developmental, human rights related, and other respects, including climate change as a driver of mitigation. And this compact will be adopted in December 2018 in Marrakesh. So there is no doubt on the part of the international community that climate change is going to be contributing to people who are either displaced, who migrate, and for whom planned relocation needs to be properly organized. 
I salute you, David, for your opening comments, and I'm going to deal with uh, the ethical and political questions of Australian coal far more briefly. But this is the image of which David speaks. Don't be afraid, don't be scared, it won't hurt you, it's coal, said our Prime Minister in February 2017. On the 8th of October, when confronted by the IPCC reports, his comment was, we're not held to any of the IPCC recommendations and nor are we bound by them. We want to assure our electricity prices are lower. Our Minister for the Environment commented that the IPCC draws a very long bow and that the private sector will decide whether it wants to invest in a new coal-fired plant, which I'll come to in a moment. And uh, just like Mr. Tong, I do want to also celebrate the fact that one of the major issues in the Wentworth by-election is that Australians want action on climate change. To talk about the private sector and to end on a note of optimism, although I don't feel obliged to do so, <laughs> I'm going to talk about climate risk disclosures. Now, on Wednesday, the 17th of October, ASA, the Australian Centre for Corporate Responsibility, secured 46% of Origin's shareholders to vote at the AGM to ask Origin to review its membership of major lobbying, energy and resources industry groups and establish criteria for continuing their support. This is the largest vote for any shareholder proposal without board support in Australian corporate history. The Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures is an important initiative established by the Financial Stability Board of the G20 in 2016, which requires companies to develop voluntary, consistent, climate-related financial risk disclosures for use by investors, lenders, insurers, and other stakeholders which consider their physical liability and transition risks associated with climate change. Interestingly, ASIC in September 2018 released its own report, Climate Risk Disclosure, by Australia's listed companies. And what it says is directors, and senior managers of listed companies need to understand and continually reassess existing and emerging risks that may be applicable to the company's business, including climate risk. This should extend to both short-term and long-term risks. And finally, to look at the investor pressure being brought on Whitehaven, another organization, Market Forces, has helped coordinate a resolution from over 100 Whitehaven shareholders to be put to its AGM, asking the company to disclose the risks it faces from both the impacts of and efforts to reduce climate change. And so this is just another indication of the pressure which is being put on companies which are resource companies and, of course, also coal companies. Thank you very much.
Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me? Yes, you can. Um, I just want to acknowledge that we're meeting here today on Gadigal land, and I acknowledge that's the land that I work and live on as well, land that was never ceded. I'd like to acknowledge any Indigenous people in the audience tonight, and also like to thank the SEI for the invitation to join this wonderful conversation, and um, thank you so much to Mr. Tong for your inspiration and, um, and the, the great example you've set for us. Thank you very much for your insights. It was an exciting day at the Australian Museum today, and Ote Tong came for a visit. He met with our director and members of our Pacific cultural team and also members of our scientific team. We had time in the collections, we had a cup of tea, and then we also had a video interview with, with Mr. Tong, which will be later put up on our website and, and shared with whoever wants to, to see it. It was important for all of us, not only because this was an extension of the historic connections that the museum and Australia more broadly has had with Kiribati over time through the, the collections that we've had here, over 700 objects at the museum from Kiribati which have arrived over the past 190 years. And so it was an extension of that, but it was also something that reflected for us the, the shared priorities that, that we have with Mr. Tong. We, like Mr. Tong, have a very high priority given to communicating about climate change and to ensuring that we're doing what we can to, to engage the public in the issues of climate change. So you can imagine, um, we also, because we also want to provide a, a platform for voices from the front line of the Pacific, we were having very lively conversations around the tea table and we expect to have ongoing conversations with Mr Tong and his colleagues. We've um, already been seeing, oh, I should show you some of the things from the, from the collections and um, also point out that we've had Visits from others from Kiribati, thanks to the Edmund Rice Centre. These are trainees who came in, um, resilience leadership trainees who have spent time at the museum um, with, with collections and, and with our education teams. And just, you know, we're really happy to be part of these um, initiatives. We're very happy to keep providing access um, and work to support the people whose cultural patrimony we look after. And this, of course, the connection is made all the more binding considering the objects that we have in our collections are not just objects but carry living spiritual presences. So tonight, Anate Tong has helped us to understand the need for a shift in the need for care and openness offered by Australians. I want to respond to this by thinking through care. I think all of us here have come here because we do care and... I want to find ways of us thinking through the importance of practices of care. So not just caring, but actually putting this into practice within our own lives and within our communities. I think there's much that can be learned from Pacific communities about practices of care as part of the cultural resources that a community employs. We can also consider the ways that our own institutions operate within um, practices of care and, and, and what it is that we're doing within our own institutions to ensure those practices. Museums, it can be said, are places of care. Museums are trusted sources of knowledge. They're places that bring together nature and culture. 
They're places where people expect to learn cross-culturally or across time about other ways of doing things. At an Aboriginal meditation session at the museum recently, Milan Dihan beautifully encapsulated the foundational importance of caring for yourself, caring for each other, and caring for the earth. There are many ways of promoting practices of care on these different scales. And this is a role that museums can take in terms of dealing with climate change and, and also just more general environmental responsibility. Caring for people and things of the past, present and future is something that museums have as their primary role. An example at the Australian Museum is the Pacific Youth Reconnection Program, whereby one of our team, Thelma Thomas, is making a real difference in the juvenile justice system when she takes a kit of cultural objects from the museum out and has workshops with the kids there and, and really helps them to connect with their senses of identity, rebuild their senses of identity and self-worth. It has really big impacts. Museums also have research capacities that support deeper understandings of challenges that communities are facing in Pacific Islands and in the diaspora, all of which can inform and motivate ways of working with and supporting each other. I just wanted to quickly give you a snapshot from one project that I was involved in. This one was when I was back in New York at the American Museum of Natural History, and I worked with Christina Stege, who's a Marshall Islander who lives in New York, that um, really wanted to design a program with me whereby we would go to the Marshall Islands talk to people in the capital, in Majuro, but also out in the outer islands, in Namrik, and find out what it is that people are experiencing in terms of environmental change and what they're doing about it. So we talked to various people, and we talked to about 80 people, and we had lots of comments about what people had been experiencing, things like saying that oh, our, our land is being eaten from both sides, from the land, from the, um, from the sea and from the lagoon side, um, we're having more droughts, we're having more storms, we're having more um, uh, yeah, saltwater intrusion, which is killing our plants. The days are hotter, it doesn't get cooler at night. We asked what they were doing about this, and they mentioned several practical techniques and also a cultural resource. Most people mentioned this. The Marshallese practice of la ledron, which means caring for each other. Neighbours share what, what they have with each other, they help with restocking gardens, and they provide each other shelter when they're needed. A weaver we spoke to said, as someone who grew up here in Namrik, I can say it is good here. We feed each other and share food. We can go freely from one home to another. If we run out of water here in a drought, we can always go and ask for some at the next house, and they will give us water. There is a sense of cultural resilience in the responses from Marshallese respondents that they referred to as being their key method for managing climate change impacts. There is a real sense that traditions of self-support enshrine many of their key cultural values and that these are crucial to pass on to future generations. A dean of the Lutheran Church in Namrik talked about what helps when it comes to dealing with environmental changes. He said, the skills we need are canoe making so that we don't depend on fuel and handicraft making, like, like mat weaving, because it's our tradition. We need to preserve our skills, our custom, our language, our traditional food. I want our next generation to know all these things. In places across the Pacific, there are local words for caring for each other in the land and working with each other. These foundations of care are at the heart of so much of the operation of everyday life, 
as well as picking up again after a disaster. These practices of care typically extend to the land, sea and living things beyond people and help to ensure the maximum amount of resilience in face of both the slow violence and the faster kinds of violence of natural disasters that are part of global environmental change. Sharing these learnings, philosophical and practical, through the museum's public programs, publications and exhibitions is increasingly important as the necessity to find ways to cope with unpredictable conditions and increasing losses is rapidly becoming universal. Museum exhibitions and programs are increasingly focusing around the world on the impacts of the climate crisis on societies and their ecologies. And this makes sense because climate change, as we've been hearing tonight, is a cultural problem caused by consuming cultures, bringing cultural impacts and requiring a paradigm shift within our overconsumptive cultures to rein it in. Being open to the direction and drive provided by Pacific communities for whom climate change is up close and personal lends ground truthing and real power to outreach. One of our programs that we've had at the museum is called Oceania Rising, Climate Change in Our Region, and it's enabling us to bring Pacific voices to be heard in um, not only our museum, but also at the Blacktown Arts Centre and Kasula Powerhouse, where there's many Pacific communities. We're really bringing Pacific voices to other communities within Sydney. Through artists' work, such as Latai Tamopeo and also Angela Tiatia, we're showing video works. This is just one showing of Angela's video work, Tuvalu, at the Australian Museum. It's now being shown at the other venues. And they're also putting other works and um, film festivals and um, other, other programs in around these works. There's also Talanoa, or Pacific uh, discussion groups, as well. One of the things that um, Angela has said about this work is that the Pacific is the canary in the global mine. We can see a glimpse of the challenges we may face in our collective future by looking at life in some of our smallest nations. This work bears witness to and laments what we are losing to climate change. Another practice of care that the museum is really engaging in but, but is something that you can see in many different um, organisations, community groups and just between individuals is the, the practice of telling stories. As William Cronin has said, the stories we tell change the way we act in the world. Whether quiet sharing in the collections, talking about the seeds that, and shells that are no longer available to make a bag like this in Tonga, or more public events. Oh, this is another private event. This is um, a, the 350.org climate canoe, um, climate warriors canoe that was in the blockade in Newcastle. It's now at the Australian Museum Storehouse. Uh, we hope to get it on exhibition soon. Um, more public um, talks uh, and other um, public events, such as art events, um, which you can see. This is part of the Oceania Rising program, the Sinalebu Huakau's intertidal work about changing um, debris that you find in the intertidal zone in Tonga, her parents' generation, um, here, her grandparents' generation and her own generation, which is full of plastic bags. These kinds of events, these kinds of exhibitions are ways of sharing stories, whether they're visual, whether they're spoken. Pow they're powerful ways of rethinking and talking into existence the world that we want. I can recommend going to Kasula Powerhouse and Blacktown Arts Centre 
for some of the to see some of these exhibitions and to take part in some of those discussions that are that are coming up. Um, particularly 10th of November at Kasula, there's going to be a day festival and a night festival as well. Go to both. They're going to be awesome and really, really vibrant, um, invigorating ways of really getting involved in sharing new perspectives, learning new perspectives and sharing your own stories. We can perhaps get, um, we can perhaps most usefully get communal. We want people to go out and Pick an organisation, join it, support it, donate to it. Not many Australians donate to environmental organisations. It's something that's really needed. Sign petitions, get heard. Join One Million Women, join Farmers for Climate Action, 350.org. Whether it's focusing locally or across our region, there's so many ways for us to care for each other, ourselves and our life support system. So I'm keen to hear in the discussion session what Anate feels are practices of care that Australians can most usefully engage in to support you. Thank you. Thank you.